Our scripture this morning comes from Joshua 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, and then the end, verses 29 through 33. This is page 198 of your pew Bibles. Let us pray. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. In Christ's name, amen. Joshua 24, verse 1 through 15, and then we'll skip 29 through 33. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord and the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father and Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And made his offspring many, and I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, but, and afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And then when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet between you. Uh, I sent the, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, the fear of the Lord, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 29. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in his inheritance at Timnasserah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. 
As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. The word of God for the people of God. We're closing our series through Joshua, and we come to uh, the final chapter where he uh, challenges the people, reminding them of God's faithfulness, calling them uh, to commit themselves to follow this God who has uh, been so gracious and faithful to them, and those stirring words, choose you this day whom you will serve. And it confronts us because this is Really kind of the message we continue here is the gospel, is the message of God's good news, his, his salvation, his redemption, the things he's done for us. But it always calls us to a response, to commit ourselves to obedience and trust of the one who has done these great deeds for us. And we've seen in Joshua, there's been a continual recounting of God's faithfulness, a continual recalling to reaffirm the covenant, a continual recalling to um, trust and to um, um, remember and be obedient to the one who has been faithful. But as we hear this closing thing, I want us to see um, kind of four poles, um, four kind of things that are drawing us to either end that we have to keep in balance. And there, there's one that kind of deals on a horizontal level and one that deals with, um, you know, a vertical level. So if you can imagine a cross, and that image might really come to mind because of the cross in front of my Bible as I was thinking about this, but we'll go with this. The first is the horizontal. I, I, I'm... I'm struck at how on one end we are um, being told the story of God's faithfulness through generations of hundreds of years that the people didn't know. And yet on the other is the personal um, individual need to commit, um, to trust in this God. So on one hand of this, this horizontal pole is the remembrance that, uh, as Baker was talking about, we are adopted into a family. Part of the gospel is that we have been, our sins are forgiven, that we look forward to eternal life, that we are right with God, and I have a personal relationship with this God. That is one of the great parts of the gospel, but it is not to be cut off by other aspects of our salvation, which is not only have you been justified and forgiven, but also you've been adopted. You've been adopted into a family. And so it's not just enough for me to spend personal time with Jesus, but I'm supposed to do so living among the others he has adopted in his family. So one aspect is very much the, the, the family history, this covenant community. Um, they are to remember their father Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob, and this long history 
which now they play their part. They, they take their place in this family, in this nation, in this lengthy thing. And, and so, believer, to, to trust in Christ for salvation means also to be brought into his family. And so our, our life together as a church is really not kind of an optional thing for Christians. There, there's the New Testament, there's no sense of a solitary believer. All of the words are talking about the way we love one another and the way we as a church um, do things together and the way we live out our common life together. So we are brought in, and you know, there's so many things that that, that would impact is that, um, you know, as we um, soon will have folks um, taking vows of membership where they're saying they're going to be part of this community. Not only do they trust in Christ, but they're taking part in this community and we are committing ourselves to make them part of our family and to minister together um, because we're not just a collection of individuals who trust in Christ. We have a union with Christ and therefore with one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and that should have a real impact. So, you know, throughout the week, is, is your faith walk just something that you say, I come to worship, and then the rest of it I'm on my own? Or do you see the need to live out life with other believers. Might be believers in other congregations, but you, you are part of the church. Therefore, uh, your, your life ought to reflect the way you are part of a new family, your new community. And we, as a community, are open and welcoming and receiving all who repent and turn to Christ because they are brothers and sisters. We, we, you know, we're, we're the people, as one person said, not just that we've kind of found friends that we like, but we're a family that God has placed into each other's lives. And, you know, it's, it's a, a wonderful thing to look at a group of people who have nothing in common other than Jesus. I, I love to look at a group of people who you would see that nothing would bring them in connection with one another if it wasn't for the fact they recognize their sin and they recognize the redemption they have in Christ. And, and it goes across so many lines that that we see this unity that we have because that shows the power of the gospel to cross those boundaries and to cross those lines and create a new family of people who would not choose one another on their own. And so we, we must remember that being part of a community, loving one another, being active and involved is part of what's going on here. They're brought in and saying, our story is now or their story is now our story. Um, and that's us. We, we have been brought in to this family. Though we were outsiders, all of us now are looking back and saying, this story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and Jesus coming and the disciples and Peter and Paul, that's your story now. That's our family this is our history, and yet at the same time, it doesn't mean that we're not personally invested, that we don't make individual choice of whom we will serve, because though the Scriptures know nothing of a solitary individual Christian on their own, the Scriptures show that faith is a personal faith. It's a commitment that you have made to follow Christ on your own, not because 
um, that's just who you are or what your family is or that's kind of your ethnic identity or something. That's, it's who you have decided to follow. Um, I will reference our discussion with those joining the church earlier uh, as, as um, um, well, I'll just have to call your name. You're the only guy up here. So Chess was sharing with me of, of growing up in the faith. Everyone was sharing how they grew up in the faith, and that is, that is the blessing we look for is that as we, as we bring children into the covenant, we pray that they never know a day that they didn't know Jesus. We pray that they never know a time they weren't trusting and following Jesus. But, but as Chess said, there was a time he had to say, this is my faith. I'm personally going to commit to it. And so that's also something is that we all say, you know, I've, I've had the joy of being part of this community, but the faith is not just the community's. The faith is mine. I've committed myself. Um, so he tells the story, but then he calls them to choose whom you're going to serve. And, and though that is, he's addressing the group. He's addressing the community, but what I want to suggest is he's not saying you as a community take a vote and the majority wins and y'all go along with it. What he's saying is each one of you must personally decide, am I here because that's just what my family's always done, or am I here because this is my faith? I am trusting in Christ. Am I trusting in Jesus? Am I making this my own? And that is also what we do as we, as we baptize children. We're praying for the day they will stand up before us and claim that faith for their own in confirmation that they make it personal, that you have made it personal. And have you done that? Have you come to a time that you've said, is this something I'm doing because I'm trusting in Jesus myself? I'm, I'm committing myself to follow him. You do so, you're part of a community, but it's a very personal relationship with Christ that makes you part of that community. That's the horizontal level. Our relationship with one another, ourselves, don't think about it too hard. I didn't either. It might fall apart completely. Let's move on to the other. There's a sense in which here we have God's grace that goes before us. And as Presbyterians, we're big on that. It is a wonderful comfort, and we need to look at it. And at the same time, it calls us to a decision, right? Choose. And so these are, these are together. They're not conflicting with one another. They're, they're both on this, this, these poles. So notice there, Joshua said to them, Thus the Lord your God, long ago your fathers lived um, beyond the Euphrates, care of the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. They were happy pagans, doing their pagan thing, worshiping their pagan idols, rejecting the God who made heaven and earth and all that is in them, and doing their pagan thing. And Abraham did not wake up one day and say, you know what, I got an idea. I'm going to put away all these idols, and I'm going to begin to follow the one true God. And God, I have an idea. Why don't you give me some children, and we'll make covenant with you. There was nothing with Abraham to say, I'm going to reject this, out of his own sense to say, I'm going to stop this and follow God. It was completely and totally God's grace where he comes into the life of Abraham and says, I'm going to call you out of this and call you into a relationship, into a covenant with me. 
And God calls Abraham by name, and he overlooks other pagans who were doing their pagan thing. And Abraham, who was as much of a pagan, as much of a rejection, by God's grace was called to pursue Jesus, to pursue God and to come to faith in him and to have faith in him and make covenant with him. And so the same thing of God's grace that, that calls Jacob and makes covenant with him. God's, God didn't see, Jacob, you're such a, a better person. You, you hear the story of Jacob and you hear he's a scoundrel. It's God's grace that goes before Jacob. It's God's grace that goes before um, the people in Egypt. As they are in bondage and slavery there, he takes them and draws them out. And it's God's grace that leads them in. And as he says, it's, I've gone in and I've conquered the land. I've brought the people in. I've defeated your enemies. And that's the same grace that we experience. It's a grace that was before the foundation of the world. It's a love that preceded you doing anything. God's grace, not a response to our merit and to our effort, but God's grace and love that goes before anything and therefore is unstoppable is the grace that they see. It's the grace that brought them into the land, and it's the grace that comes to them. And that is, that is such a comfort for us to know. God knows you by name before all creation and puts his love on you. And yet, that does not mean that we do not exercise faith, that we don't call others to repentance. That does not mean that we, um, therefore, just wait around to be zapped by the Holy Spirit, or if we're in, we're in. Rather than saying that means there's no choice here, it, that grace is the very basis of that choice. It's that basis of exercising faith. That's why he says, after saying all of these things God graciously did for you, who did not earn it or deserve it or merit it, now therefore, that means that grace is before this, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods and choose this day whom you will serve. You have to make that choice now. And so it's... it's God's grace and the other end of that pole is that grace is not an excuse not to make a choice or to not share the message with others, but rather it is the motivation to make that choice. And it's a choice that we make daily, uh, they, continually being called, make a choice, decide who you're going to follow, put away the false gods, put away sin, trust in him, be obedient to his commandment, follow his law. And that's the choice that we have. To choose to follow this God is to choose to turn away from any other competitor. And God calls us by his grace in our lives to choose to follow him and trust in him and to be obedient to him. And in doing so, to turn away from everything that would keep us from him. To repent in the New Testament language, to turn away from those things. We seem to do really well at saying, follow Jesus, trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus. But to do so is never apart from turn away from other things, repent, acknowledge your sin, leave the old life behind. The, the, the message is always to do both. And I think one of the weaknesses of 
much of the modern church is we try to believe in Jesus without turning away from the false gods. We try to kind of hobble together and follow God. It was, it was the same thing they had. Hey, believing in God and trusting in God is one thing, but to commit ourselves to him in such a way that I'm going to turn away from anything else is the difficulty. And so are you turning away from false gods? Are you trusting in this God? Are you following Jesus? Are you turning away from anything that would keep you from Jesus? We want to follow God and yet still follow money. We want to follow Jesus who calls us to take up our cross and follow him and not turn away from comfort and pleasure. We, we want to say we're going to follow God and not turn away from putting ourselves forward and building ourselves up. We can't follow one who uh, told us to serve others and to um, made himself a servant as the same time we're trying to build ourselves as lords. And so we are called to remember God's grace and in doing so, turn away from anything else and follow and commit ourselves to him in faith and obedience. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that we would commit ourselves to you anew. Uh, Lord, as we um, um, hear these membership vows that um, we would all recommit ourselves to you. As we come to this table and we remember the grace that has come to us, we take it also as um, uh, a recommitment of the covenant you have made with us. And we pray that we would trust and obey in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.